Let me just introduce myself. My name is Eldon. If we haven't met before, I'm pastor here at our Agassiz campus, working with, uh, serving rather this morning with Pastor John, our student ministries youth pastor. And uh, so pray for our youth ministry uh, just last week or the week before, Cody who leads our north of the Fraser here, this Agassiz, um, uh, or Agassiz Harrison ministry, he, he resigned. And so we're going to be looking for someone else to uh, lead youth ministry up here under Pastor John. I want to introduce one more uh, person today. Oh, where did she go? Where did he go? Where did he go? Oh, my notes, so I don't get the name wrong. So the first time at church today, for the very first time, let's welcome Emmett Alexander Manfred Melani. Uh, he's a little guy, two months old, born to Carl and Lindsay, uh, and, uh, and a little brother to Brady and Adeline. So welcome here, Emmett. So good, so good. I love uh, celebrating new life in our, in our midst. So are you up for another road trip story? Last, if you were here last week, I um, see we, start, we started a series um, that will lead us up to Easter through the season of Lent called The Road to the Cross. And so I figured, wow, it's a good opportunity for a road trip story. And uh, last week I shared that my parents planned a road trip to Hillsborough, Kansas. Their goal was to visit my aunt and uncle there. And uh, I was in junior high. They said, hey, invite along your best friend who happened to also be my cousin and uh, let's the four of us do this road trip. So their goal was to visit family. Our goal was to stop every place we could and collect a full can of American soda because you can't get these things in Canada and we just wanted to show everybody what it, what's out there. It was my first time into the States. Okay, so I grew up in, in, I grew up in small town Saskatchewan. We didn't get out much. Uh, let me tell you about the second time I crossed the border, literally. So now fast forward about... I don't know, eight, nine years. I am 20 years old, and I'm newly married and happily naive. <laughs> My wife is 18. After our, uh, our first uh, night, which we spent in Saskatoon, we got in the car and drove to, down to the border and crossed in southern Saskatchewan into Minot, North Dakota, and I boarded a jet airplane for the first time in my life and I was terrified. I'd been on a small airplane once before, that was terrifying enough, but this jet was just beyond what I could ever imagine. Small town Saskatchewan landed in Orlando, Florida. <laughs> and that was overwhelming, okay? And so we, we managed to find our uh, car rental, and uh, <clears throat> this was all arranged for us by somebody. See, I was, uh, just finished my second year of college as a single student. Marcy and I went back together as married students for our, our, our next two years uh, in southern Saskatchewan at Briarcrest, Cairnport. And so I found this, uh, this lady in, in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, a travel agent, and she was so excited to help out this young couple. So she arranged all of these things and car rental and you name it. So we landed in Orlando. Got our car rental, and now you got to remember, this is in the days before Google Maps and GPS and all that kind of stuff, and so we're trying to find our way to Titusville on the coast. Ever, anyone ever heard that? Titusville is a small city by Cape Canaveral. It's where the Kennedy Space Station is, and so when we got there, uh, it was neat because the space shuttle was uh, ready for launch. They were going to launch it that week that we were there, but due to weather, we didn't get to see it, but the beaches were just full of cars. Anyway, on our way to Titusville, oh, we got lost. 
<laughs> not hard to do when you have mazes of freeways and interchanges and all these twists and curves in the road. And so we got horribly off track and we figured, okay, something's wrong because we're getting further away from civilization. There's nobody around. And all of a sudden we see this sign for an alligator farm. <laughs> so we pulled in. And these people were wonderful. They helped us get back on the right path and told us how to get to Titusville from where we were. And they said, hey, while you're out here on your honeymoon, why don't you come back and visit us? And we're like, we'll do that. So a couple days later, we got in the car, and now we knew where we were going. <laughs> and we visited this alligator farm. And what actually turned out, see, I don't like getting lost. I don't know about you, but I'm also not one of those guys who refuses to stop and ask for help. I do. I get, because I want to get to where I'm going, okay? So I'm just going to humble myself and say, can you help me, please? So we did that. And, uh, and so what turned out, what could have been a very frustrating experience turned out to be one of the most wonderful opportunities of that trip because that alligator farm was a highlight. It was fantastic being out in the swamp looking at alligators, and it was springtime, right? So they were nesting, there was alligator eggs, and there was the mamas protecting, and all of that kind of stuff. It was fantastic. So last week, we noted that the journey that Jesus took to the cross, the trip that he took from heaven to earth back to the right hand of the Father included one stop, one stop that he needed to make. His goal was the cross. And we noted that the, the journey to the cross for Jesus, as for us, requires a resoluteness, a readiness, and a response. And there's four responses, and what Jesus is looking for is repentance, that we would turn from our own way to his way and what he accomplished for us at the cross and we would trust in him. And so it was a heavy message and I thought, well, this week we'll keep it a little bit on the lighter side and we'll talk about you know, things like persecution, suffering, death, <laughs> conflict, division, and oh yes, we'll throw in some interpreting of the times, okay? <laughs> so are you ready? These are the twists in the road. Three twists, but one wonderful opportunity if we don't let these things throw us off course. If we embrace the opportunity that's for us, God has a wonderful plan for us that we see in, these pas in the passage today to take us deeper and to experience him more fully. Okay, let's get into it. Three twists, one opportunity. I want to set the context a little bit. If you have your Bible, please open it to Luke 12. And um, I want to go back to actually verse 1 before we start in the passage that was read for us, and that is verse 49 through 56. So in Luke 12, verse 1, it says this, In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first. Okay, that's important. Because what's happening is like Jesus, uh, so John, John prepared the way for Jesus' ministry and people are coming to hear what John has to say and he's pointing them to Jesus and when Jesus begins teaching, all of a sudden he's attracting crowds and they want to hear what he has to say because there's some pretty amazing things and so um, he has his disciples with him who are listening to everything and back and forth he'll, he'll uh, the crowds are gathering but he'll speak to his disciples and then he talks and he, he turns and he talks to the crowds. They're asking questions and they're listening. And then he talks to his disciples. And then he talks to the crowds again. 
The first three things, the twists in this road trip on the journey to the cross that we're going to explore today, I think were said and intended for his disciples, those who followed him. And the last one, it says very intentionally that he spoke it to all. So verse, verse 1, thousands gathered, and he began to say to his disciples first. Then in verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, and then he, said, and then he addressed this person in the crowd. Verse 22, and he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, all that kind of stuff. And then we get to verse 41. And then Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And Jesus keeps talking to him. And that leads directly into our, our verse, our passage today, where he's still continuing to talk to Peter and the, the, the disciples. And then in verse 54, which is after these three twists in the road, the opportunity, he's, he also said to the crowds, so the first three things we're going to talk about today, I believe, are intended primarily for the followers of Jesus. And the opportunity is presented to the culture, the crowds, okay? With that frame, let's get into this. First thing Jesus talks about, from my understanding of scripture and my study this week, is passion and persecution. Verse 49, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. Now, what does that mean? I mean, like, whoa, Jesus. <laughs> what are you talking about? I mean, at first glance, it, it seems like judgment. It's the very thing that from last week's text in Luke 9, Jesus rebuked his disciples for. You know, Jesus was talking and the, the crowds rejected him. And, Jesus, and, the, the, and the disciples uh, wanted to, James and John, wanted to call down fire to consume, the, consume these people and judge them instantly on the spot. And Jesus rebuked them and, and he said, like, cool it, guys, cool it. Now, given that Jesus is God and he has every right to judge the earth, whereas we don't. You see, <clears throat> scripture says that we are supposed to judge each other in the church. When there's an issue of sin and that kind of thing, we call each other out with the goal of restoration and repentance. And we do that with each other, but we are not to judge the world in any way, shape, or form. That's God's job. And so Jesus had the right to do that, and it's not out of the realm of possibility that that's what he meant here, but I don't think it's primarily what he meant. I think judgment is part of it, but based on my study of the context and of the words very carefully this week, I, I came to a different conclusion. But let's frame it with John 3, verses 16 and 17, okay? I mentioned this last week. For God so loved the world, this is his heart, God always, the Father, does everything out of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus went on a road trip, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the goal in going to the cross. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This was not Jesus' time to pronounce judgment on the world. It was his time to, to present the message of the kingdom and of repentance and faith and trust in him and what he would do on the cross. 
So in order to understand more fully what Jesus really meant here by fire, we gotta, we gotta look at the context and now we gotta back up even further to Luke 11. Verse 29, it says that the crowds were increasing and he began to say to them that this generation is an evil generation. <laughs> Whoa. We look around at the culture and the crowds and I, I wanna say that we live in an evil generation. And so he gave them the sign of Jonah. They were seeking a sign. Matthew focused on the sign of the resurrection. Luke chose to focus on the sign of Jonah, and that was of repentance. Calling people to repentance in the middle of their wickedness. Repent, repent, because judgment is coming. I'm going to give you an opportunity to turn from your wicked ways and to trust in God's finished work on the cross. Repent. And then in the middle of that, <clears throat> to those who were part of the, the culture, the context, but claimed to be followers of Jesus or the, of, of the people of God, he pronounced a series of woes. Starting in verse 37 of chapter 11, he's speaking to the Pharisees and then to the judges to the, or to, to, to the lawyers, the scribes and the Pharisees. And he pronounced woes to them. Woe are you? And he, he said, you're, you're full of greed, wickedness, injustice, neglect, pride. You load people with burdens too heavy to bear. You do nothing to lift the burdens of others. You consent to the deeds of your fathers who killed and persecuted the prophets. You are hypocrites. How to win friends and influence people one-on-one. -on -one. <laughs> And then it says in chapter 11, verse 53 and 54, as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. So here's what I think. The fire that Jesus came to cast on the earth is the fire Actually, and in context that, make, context that makes sense, the fire of discord, opposition, and persecution that was full, fueled by a Holy Spirit-driven passion and zeal that Jesus had, a passion that led him to the cross, that was warning of God's burning anger and wrath and judgment and eternal punishment, the fire of eternal punishment for the unrepentant, which culminated in the cross, the place where his passion led him in obedience to the will of the Father to bear the full wrath of God's fury against the sin of all humanity and all of its disastrous consequences. My road to the cross is going to light a fire that is unavoidable. And oh, that it were already kindled is a reference to his final passion at the cross. John the Baptist is the one who put the kindling in place and got it ready. And in fact, he upset people long before Jesus did when he pointed people to Jesus and they came to him to hear about this message of repentance and why are you baptizing people to repentance? The first thing John says, you brood of vipers. Whoa. Whoa how to win friends and influence people. <laughs> 101, I guess Jesus taught 102. 
So if you go back to the, that context, Luke 3, verses 9, 17, and also 15 to 17, John, after calling people a brood of vipers and calling them to repentance, he said, even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. One commentator wrote, suddenly Jesus lets the volcano in his heart burst forth. The fire was already burning. Christ came to set the world on fire and the conflagration, that means inferno, the inferno had already begun. This very passion in Christ's heart would set his friends on fire and his foes in opposition. It is like the saying of Jesus that he came to bring peace, not bring not peace, but a sword. You see, the passion of Jesus, the spiritual impulse and Holy Spirit fire passion that drove Jesus to the cross resulted in the divisions that are described in the following verses. And with that, it were already kindled, means the conflagration, the inferno, that came by his death on the cross. For he changes the figure after that from fire to baptism, which refers more plainly to his death on the cross. We'll get to that in a moment. But you see along the way, the apostle John, he noted that on the road to the cross, Jesus had this burning, fiery passion that was not going to be quenched. And his disciples remembered what was written in Psalm 69, verse 9, for zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. The sign is the cross. My passion is leading me to the cross, my death. And in three days, I will raise it up. So that leads us wonderfully into twist number two. We move from his passion and the conflict and the persecution that caused to Jesus' suffering and sacrifice. Verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Now when the people heard him talking about baptism, they would have known immediately what he was talking about and what it symbolized. Baptism means to plunge, to sink, to drench, to overwhelm, and they would have thought of things like Noah, the flood, completely overwhelming people and put, putting them into distress, catastrophe, even severe suffering and death. They knew Jesus was talking about the baptism of death and suffering. They would have thought also about the ritual washings that were required of the Jews in the Old Testament and the cleansing that it brought. And they would have also had in mind passing through the Red Sea, which threatened to overwhelm them, but having been brought through by the faithfulness of God, were saved. Jesus' death was a baptism. 
death to an old way of life and rising to a new way. God's divine plan for bringing salvation to sinners. And in Mark 10, 38, Jesus asked his disciples, he said, are, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? The two sacraments of the church today, the cup, communion, and baptism are both linked and point directly to the cross of Jesus, to his death and his resurrection, but primarily his death. And so when he talked about his baptism, it would have reminded them of what he said earlier in Luke 9. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, It's exactly what happened, and be killed and on the third day be raised. And John 19, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And Jesus talked about that moment when he said, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is finished until it is accomplished now this passion this persecution this suffering this sacrifice of death leads to discord and division that's the third twist do you think Jesus said that I have come to give peace on earth no I tell you but rather division for from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Thank goodness for me, I still have a good relationship with my son-in-law. <laughs> okay, it's good, to, it's good to laugh, isn't it? It's good, it's good to laugh in the midst of all this heaviness. But we ought to read these verses and go, say what? Christ divides? <laughs> he didn't come to bring peace on earth? I, wait a minute. I thought at the birth of Jesus, the angels said, peace on earth and goodwill toward men? This is not a statement that we would expect. If you go back and read the angel's announcement and peace on earth and goodwill toward men was promised among those with whom he is pleased. And with whom is God pleased? He is pleased with those who respond to a message of repentance and the cross which divides. He is pleased with those who trust in his finished work and put their full faith and trust in him based on what he would do at the cross. And the cross is what creates that sharp division. And there are people on either side of that cross. There are people who believe and who trust and repent and put their faith in Christ, and some who don't, and some who reject him, creating a sharp division, which is extremely painful in families. Listen. Taking a bold stand for Jesus deeply divides people. 
just read the context of Luke 12, the chapters and the verses all around it. Deep division. Siding with Jesus will put you offside automatically with many people. And in fact, Jesus makes himself a little more clearer as, as, as uh, told by Matthew. He's, he said this to all his disciples, but they picked up on different things. Matthew 10 says, Jesus said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And you know what? The most, one of the most challenging and interesting things about our cultural moment for the church that I find is that people are pursuing the love and the acceptance of their kids, their nieces, their nephews, their aunts, their uncles, their mom and dad and are rejecting the authority of God's word and the cross of Christ in order to maintain good relationships. And it is sending people to hell. That's a hard message to hear, but it's happening all over the place. We'll get to that in a minute. Here's the juxtaposition and irony of the cross. It brings division and it brings reconciliation. It brings suffering, yet it does bring peace. But you see, if Jesus had sought peace, if he had came to, you know, calm the ruffled feathers and still the turbulent waters and keep everybody happy around him, he would not have gone to the cross. And because he went to the cross, we can have peace. But the people missed it, most of them. And so he talks about interpreting the time, how imperative it is that we look around and see what's happening. And this is where, again, he said in verse 54, he also said to the crowds, this is the point at which we need to engage the culture, the crowds, the people around us. And he said, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be a scorching heat. And so it happens. I mean, it's not rocket science. It's what happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? So Jesus called on the crowd to know the nature of the times of his ministry. Israel was turning away, and the time for them to respond without facing judgment was short. It was getting shorter. And the only sign Jesus would give them was the sign of Jonah, the message of repentance. For Luke, he was com- the comparison was with the preaching of Jonah and the message of Jesus. Israel was like a fruitless tree that the owner of the garden was ready to remove. But, trage- but tragedy in the end of all people, which is the tragedy of the end of all people unless they repent. Israel's house would be desolate until they recognize Jesus as sent by God. Our, our culture will be desolate until they recognize Jesus as sent by God. 
and the ax is at the root of the tree. We must interpret the times. And nevertheless, God said blessing would still come to the earth regardless of how people responded. But Jesus desperately wanted his people, the Jews, to repent, but he knew their refusal. And listen, you and I are placed on this earth to be a blessing to people because the axe is at the root of the tree. And on his final approach to the cross in Luke 19, it says, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would you, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you to the ground and you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. They didn't interpret the present time. So how do we apply all of this? There's tons of application for us. I've already mentioned a little bit. But let's go back to the beginning and talk about what this means for us now. And I believe that just as Jesus targeted certain audiences then, the same applies to us now. The the twists on the road to the cross are for his disciples, his followers, those already have repented and put their faith and trust in Jesus. And the opportunity that presents itself when we don't allow those things to throw us off course is so wonderful. And that is the opportunity that he presents to the culture as we engage with them. You see, matters of spiritual passion, persecution, suffering, sacrifice, conflict, and division, those are kind of in-house discussions. Those are to prepare us for engaging with the culture as we help them interpret the time and interpret the future. So the question I have that I start with coming out of all of this is, has the Holy Spirit kindled a fire, a zeal, a passion in my heart, in our hearts for the things of God? a passion to see sinners come to repentance and faith in Jesus and be reconciled at the cross? Do we weep over our cities? Do we weep over our culture? Do we weep over our families? It's the cross where Christ's passion was fully kindled and it's the cross that ought to fire a fiery Holy Spirit passion of God in our hearts, a passion for the lost. I love what the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy. He said, for the Spirit of God gave, the, for the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. And we, we want to stop there. Oh, yay! <laughs> the Holy Spirit gives me power, love, and a sound mind or discipline. Stop. Paul's like, no, 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 no. So don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. That's where your power and your passion ought to drive you. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel. Oh, we don't like to read that. 
by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death at the cross and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This is what the power and the fiery passion of the Holy Spirit is for. And listen, a lack of Holy Spirit fire passionately burning in our souls will result for some in the eternal, unquenchable fire of God's righteous judgment. And that is something that ought to move us to tears. It ought to cause us to weep. When I think of the many people whom I know, many possibly spending all of eternity in a place of eternal weeping, gnashing of teeth, and fiery torment. A fire is ignited in my soul. But a question that I asked myself this week, that I ask myself today is, does it burn as hot as it did for Jesus? Does the fire in our souls, that Holy Spirit passion, burn as hot within us? Is it an inferno within us as it was with Jesus? Just prior to our text, earlier in Luke 12, he said this, verses four and five. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. There's an urgency, friends. There's an urgency. And we do people in the gospel a disservice when we ignore fire. But it's not the place to start in evangelism. (laughs) We need to get this, okay? We need to get this. I'm going to talk about how this all applies to us as we engage our culture and help them interpret the time. But to start with fire, (laughs) we have to warn of judgment and call people to repentance. But we need to get this because it changes the way we talk to people. So Jesus said to his disciples in Mark, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Do we believe this? Do we believe it? And Paul said, I will do anything possible. I will will become all things to all people that I might save some. I want to follow the way of Jesus who came to seek and to save the lost. And he wrote to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians 5, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who, might, those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Where's our passion? And are we willing to be persecuted for it? If Jesus' life was marked with, persecu- with suffering and with sacrifice, and we are his followers, why should we expect any different? And that's the second thing is, Suffering and sacrifice. Why do we hold back? Why? Why do I hold back? 
It's because our culture is consumed with comfort. Right? We're consumed with comfort. We talked about it last week. Jesus said, oh, you want to follow me? Okay. Let me tell you something. Foxes, they have this hole in the ground and they go to sleep down there. Birds have this nest, you know, up in the branches and that's where they find a good cozy place. Me? I don't have any place to lay my head. So you want to follow me? It's going to be uncomfortable. Jesus said that following him would invoke hatred, persecution, and not to be surprised by that because the world hated him first. So in 2 Timothy, Paul wrote to the young feller, he said, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus doesn't hide the truth from us. What he says is what we get. And Paul wrote in Romans 6, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so Paul says, walk in that newness of life. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Are we willing to put ourselves to death, to suffer, to sacrifice that others might have life? Are we bearing fruit? A question that I asked myself this week as I prepared is, who can I point to and say, there goes an alive Christian because I died to Christ? The Apostle John said, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers But if anyone has the world's goods, comfort, and sees his brothers in need, closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word and talk, but in deed and in truth. And so when we talk about baptism and ministry partnership here at Central, this is what we mean. That's a high calling. Baptism and ministry partnership is not a class. It has nothing to do with a written constitution. It doesn't have anything to do with a legality that says now you belong you know, as a member to this society. But it is a command and a step of obedience whereby we identify with our Savior and we lay down our lives for the sake of others. That's what it means to be baptized and to be a partner in ministry at Central. And all of this leads to division. Not hopefully not our actions, but the cross. I, I spoke with a colleague of, uh, in ministry this week whose um, husband has paid a very high price, literally, um, re- relationally and financially with, within his family for choosing to follow Jesus. Was cut off, was not treated well, was not given any support in continuing or further education and all of those kinds of things. You're done. And this faithful wife suffered right alongside him the consequences of their decision to take up their cross in loyalty to Jesus and they had to fight 
continually the battle of bitterness because of those things. And that they trusted God that it would be the cross and their commitment to Jesus that would divide the family and not their actions. We need to strive, friends, to put no barrier to God except the offense of the cross. And we need to work hard to bring a message of peace and reconciliation with God that brings people together. The cross will divide, but it also reconciles. And so the beauty of the early church was that, you know, where you had slaves and masters who didn't like each other and brought them together under one family called the church. And it is the cross that brings people together today. Alistair Begg said this, the cross is where reconciliation is provided and the church is where reconciliation is to be proclaimed. And so we need to interpret the time and engage the culture like we never have before because in this time, we have been afforded a tremendous opportunity to proclaim a message of reconciliation and peace at the cross. Right? You see, now don't take this the wrong way. And I'm going to give credit to somebody who did a podcast this last week. But viruses and the violence of war and the biblical language that is being used in mainstream media right now, I, I listen to the news a couple, you know, I regret sometimes doing that. But I, I watched the news a couple of times, and then on the national, the CBC, 10 p.m. news, twice this past week, the news anchor talked biblical language and talked about apocalyptic scenes coming out of Ukraine. And so... As evil and destructive as, as viruses and as war is, they are actually gifts to the church because they open doors and conversations about human suffering and mortality and eternal life that otherwise would never be opened. Right? As the crowds around us as the culture bears witness to conflict and suffering and deep division that we have not seen in two or three generations, we're going back to the 1940s since we've seen this kind of stuff. They are asking the hard questions and we have an interpretation for them of this present time. And it hasn't changed. It's the cross. And so let's not let Many, many things in our culture divide us because they do. And we have been deeply divided for the past two years like we have never been divided before. Let's not let those things divide us, but let's let the cross of Christ divide. And we have an interpretation to present to people of not only the present time, which is to point people to the cross. It's why Jesus came for these viruses, for the violence of war, for political strife. He came for these things to set things right. And so we have an interpretation of a future time where creation will be renewed and there will be a great reset and it will be governed by a one world leader. His name happens to be Jesus Christ. 
who alone is worthy of all glory and honor and power and majesty and is to be praised forever because he was the lamb who was slain. That's where it's going, friends. And we have an amazing opportunity in this cultural moment to go there, to go there with people. I I love it that many Christians these days are taking a heightened, a peaked interest, an extreme interest sometimes in in the political, medical, financial, social, sexual climates and culture of our time. But are we looking at them intently through the lens of the spiritual climate of our world? And are we helping the crowds in our culture interpret what's going on? And are we pointing them to the cross? and the reconciliation and the peace and the hope that they can have with Jesus as a result. And so, this is a heavy message, isn't it? But how are we going to respond? Jesus gave people the sign of Jonah. And so what kind of a Jonah are we going to be? Are we going to run away and avoid the Nineveh around us? Or are we going to call it for what it is and ask people to come to repentance, that they might be saved? What's worse yet is in Jeremiah's day, chapter 8, God said, for from the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Let's not do that. But rather, this message has been given to us. 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, at the cross, we might become the righteousness of God. And one final note. Therefore, Paul wrote to the Romans, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your love has been poured into our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Burn within us, Spirit. Give us a fiery, zealous passion for the lost. May we put no stumbling block in people's way. May we let the cross divide as we speak about the reconciliation and the hope that you came to bring to this world. And we pray that many would cross over from hostility, even within families. Lord, I pray for people here this morning whose families are torn apart by division. 
May the cross bring them back together. But help people here and now to be faithful to the cross no matter what the outcome. That's what you've called us to do. To point people to you, to glorify you in the process that people might be saved. So help us with that, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.